Welcome to One Cause Church. Here is another inspirational message from Senior Pastor Eric Holler. Praise God. Glad you're here tonight. Thank you for being here. Thank you, all of you who are here in the physical building, all of you who are in the cyber world, uh, visiting us via live stream, and also those of you who are listening to our podcast. We love you very much, and we thank God for you. We are in the Gospels, and we're going to Mark chapter 3 tonight and begin in verse 13. You know, I was stirred by something I heard my brother say of all people. He usually doesn't stir me too much, unless stirring me to a fight or something. But no, on Monday when I was sitting in a class he was teaching at Christ for the Nations, and um, this day's called track day, not because we're running track, but because it gives the first and second year students a chance to come in and find out what the third year is about, the third year majors that they have. We have pastoral major, missions, worship. What else? Nobody ever see a few people here. I don't, I'll just make stuff up. Marketplace, family and children. Yeah. Hmm? Counseling, they have a biblical counseling major there. Evangelism, anyway. Huh? You're just being goofy. So, I was sitting in there listening to him talk, and he said something, and I just want to pass this on to you, because it really, really opened my eyes up a little wider to the beauty of the church. And... What the church is, when Jacob had a dream in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 28, and he saw this ladder, remember, and the angels descending on it and ascending, and when he woke up, he came to this realization, and he said, surely the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. What a sad truth, right? To be where God is, but not know he's there. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Now I want you to notice this partnership. The house of God, the gate of heaven. The house of God is the gate of heaven. It is God's greatest plan for world evangelization. Having the church as Timothy Paul writes to Timothy and he says, talking to him about how he should conduct himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. What if there was a literal gate? Let's say it was in the Amazon. A literal physical gate that if you walk through it, you are instantly in heaven. You're here on earth and you walk through this door and you're in heaven. It is a literal gate to heaven. What would you do to get to that gate how much money would you spend to get there what efforts would you take to get to the gate and who would you want to take with you we got to get to that gate I mean how many would we tell we got to get to that gate that's the gate to heaven well there are gates all over McKinney Texas there are gates all over the DFW Metroplex called churches. 
Hmm? Let's get them to the gate. You know, this coming Easter, this coming Easter is a great time to get them to the gate. Because they're going to hear the message of the gospel. And I believe that they're going to hear it, they're going to believe it, and they're going to be saved. Are you with me tonight? All right? Come on, turn to somebody and tell them, we've got to get them to the gate. Huh? Got to get them to the gate. Amen. Whatever it takes. Is it worth a little ridicule? Yeah. Is it worth the rejection? Yes. Hmm? Is it worth the embarrassment? Yes. Is it worth the awkwardness? Yes. Don't let that kind of stuff keep you from getting them to the gate. Amen. So I'm very excited about that. Anyway, it's very inspiring. Speaking of inspiring, this new monk arrives at a monastery, and he's assigned to help the other monks in, in copying the old texts by hand. Uh, he notices that what they're doing, though, is copying copies. So uh, he's not, they're not going out of the original book. They're copying copies. So the new monk goes to the head monk, and he asks him about this. He says, and he points out that there, there was an error in the first copy that the guy was copying. And, uh, and that error continued to some other copies. So the head monk says, okay, we, we've been copying from the copies for centuries, but you make a very good point. There is a lot of chance for um, mistakes. And, and so he goes down to the cellar with one of the copies to check against that original. And hours later, uh, nobody sees him. And so finally, one of the other monks goes downstairs to look for him and check on him, and he hears this sobbing from behind the, the back of the cellar, just weeping and sobbing and crying, and finds the old monk leaning over one of the original books, crying. He says, what's wrong? What's wrong, sir? He says, the word is celebrate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you get it? Okay. It's, all right, you're waking up. You're waking up. You took a while to get it, but you were worth waiting for. <laughs> okay. Could have been married all these years. All right, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. I'm sorry, verse 20, not 13. Forgive me. We'll come back to 13. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Who are they talking about? Well, it's capital H, so they must, they're talking about Jesus. They're saying Jesus is out of his mind. Who is this that's saying this about him? His family. His own people. And what did they hear about, though? That's what we've got to know. What, what is it that they heard about that they would come to this conclusion that he's out of his mind? I mean, that is a jump off the cliff, isn't it? Not he's confused or he's, he's out of his mind. Okay, let, watch this. Now let's back up to verse 13. We've got to get a little backstory to why they're saying this. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Verse 14. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. 
and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, that's a weird verse. That's all it says in verse 16. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, I'm like, you could have put a few more in there. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. I actually had to look up the pronunciation, and that was the best one that, it was close enough to Texas accent that I went with that one. Then there were some that, they weren't even using the same letters. You know, I'm like, okay. But, I think it's so cool that Jesus gave these boys a nickname. Sons of Thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, boo, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house, okay? Most, more than likely, this is Peter's house that they went into. Now verse 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Apparently they were there to eat some dinner and then the crowd came in and they couldn't even, couldn't even eat because the people were there to see Jesus and, you know, they had this pulling power. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said, he's out of his mind. Out of his mind because he's got a crowd in the house? No, he's out of his mind, they concluded. Because, first of all, they didn't initially, except Mary, but most of his family members did not believe that he was the Messiah. And this act of a, appointing 12 apostles uh, to be discipled by him and to train them up so that they could go lay hands on the sick and uh, uh, cast out devils, well, that would have been perceived, if, they, if you didn't believe, as the height of arrogance or, as they perceived it, insanity. And if he wasn't the Messiah, that would be an accurate perception. Oh, but he was. So, they're out of their minds. I want to also go to Mark chapter 6 so we can see the kind of resistance Jesus was facing, even with his own family, let alone the Pharisees, let alone these other issues, let alone the devil coming to tempt him, right? Then he went out from there and came to his own country. So he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. We see this all over Jesus' teaching, don't we? Wherever he goes, people are astonished, right? Saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hand? That's all cool, right? I mean, they're in awe. But watch this, verse 3. This is just like family right here. Hey, you're a carpenter. I know the real you. I changed your diapers. Hmm? I know who you really are. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Jose, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were what? Offended at him. Thinks he's better than us. Right? Verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. So, you know, you're called by God, you're serving the Lord, and especially if it's a little later in life, don't be ready, don't, 
expect your family to all just jump on board. Right? All just jump on board. No, they're going to they're gonna put a, bull, a target on you. Right? Because they're waiting to say phrases like, and you call yourself a Christian. As soon as you screw up, as soon as you cuss, or something happens, right? That's the thing. That's the go-to. Well, that's, that's, that's the reality of family. And Jesus stated as it was. It was the same way with him. Even his own family offended at him. And later on in that chapter, it says he couldn't do the, any mighty works because of their unbelief. He wanted to, but their unbelief kept him from doing it. It's important to believe him. Let's go back to 22 of Mark 3. Mark 3. Everybody all right? And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. So what? Okay, so his family's saying he's out of his mind, and the scribes are saying he's demon-possessed. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them, in parables. I like this. I like that he calls them to himself. Guys, come here. Come here for a second. He casts out by the devil. Let's, let's reason together for just a moment. All right. Let's think this through what you just said. All right. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Watch this. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. Some of you are like, whew. Right? But he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because, they said, he has an unclean spirit. When I was growing up, this used to scare the bejesus out of me. I used to always wonder, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? What if I do? What is it? It's always this thing just hanging over this. What is it? The sword of Damocles? <laughs> just inching you closer to this real possibility that I could blaspheme the Holy Spirit and be forever unforgiven. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Did anybody else here? Weird as I was, did you ever battle with that thought? Like, have I blasphemed? Or, uh, okay, thank you. All right. We're all weird. The word blaspheme in the, in the Bible dictionary means to speak reproachfully, to rail at, to revile, or to be evil spoken of. Now, let's go to Matthew 12, and we're going to see this from Matthew's perspective. The Holy Spirit speaking through Matthew and his perspective. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Wow. Deaf and blind. And now you can do both. 
And all the multitudes are amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, or the Lord of the flies. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. Ouch. But if I cast out demons, how? By the Spirit of God. See, we didn't catch that in, in Mark's gospel. But this says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Now you're going to see what Jesus is addressing here. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 29. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Whoa, that's heavy. That's really heavy. Now, how did Mark's story end there? It says, because they said, he has an unclean spirit. He's, in other words, he said that because they said this. I think Jesus is being very merciful here. I think he's being very gracious in that he did not say that they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, but they were real close. They were very close to it. And so he's giving this warning. Who is he talking to? Anybody remember? Of course, the scribes and Pharisees. He's not telling his disciples this. He's telling these religious fanatics. Right? He's telling these religious fanatics. And here's what he's calling out. I think it's interesting. He says, blaspheme the Son, you're forgiven. Blaspheme the Spirit. That's a whole different ballgame. Well, why is that so different? I mean, you'd think that Jesus, if you blasphemed him, that would be the worst punishment because he's the one who died for our sins. He's the one that laid it all on the line, right? You would think that he's the one, but it's the Spirit because he said, I cast out devils, how? By the Spirit of God. Remember, Jesus didn't do one lick of ministry until the Spirit came upon him. When he got baptized, the Spirit descended upon him, and that's when he first was taken by the Spirit to be tempted of the devil. Why did the Spirit drive Jesus out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Because the devil had nothing to entice Jesus with. Because Jesus wasn't born with a sinful nature like we are. He was born with his father's nature. There was no, The devil could go out there and, I mean, he could try his show all he wanted to and try all of his tricks. But none of them had anything on Jesus. So the Spirit had to drive him out there to be tempted. 
And so when, after he was done being tempted, then Luke chapter 4 says he goes into the synagogue as was his custom, and he finds that Isaiah scripture, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel. In other words, all of my function is coming because the Spirit is upon me. Everything that my preach is from the Spirit, the healing is from the Spirit, the setting the captives free is because the Spirit is upon me. Because I'm in this anointing, this flow, which is the anointing of the Spirit is the function of the Spirit. It's the capability, right? Of the now, this is so powerful. He says, you say that about me. That's fine. You're seeing me in the flesh. When you're talking about the Spirit, because it is the Spirit who draws us to God. And if you won't hear Him, then you won't hear anybody. He's the one who has come into the world to do what? To convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe. This is what He's talking about. See, to, to blaspheme the Spirit is to reject Him. Everybody who rejects the spirit of grace is going to find themselves in eternal condemnation. See, it's not actually possible for you as a believer to do it. Because here's the thing. If you've ever been afraid that you did or you might, chances are, no, the chances, it's not a chance. <laughs> You never will. Because if you have blasphemed the Spirit, why would you care if you did or didn't? Why would you care? But there's that certain awe and fear of God that we have that is in us, our spirit connected to His Spirit, that honor and that respect and that love for the Spirit of God that it, would, it grieves us to even think that that was possible to do. It really is a matter of unbelief. But they are targeting the Spirit is what he's saying. He says, you think that you're, you're saying this about me, but you're saying that the Spirit that is in me, giving me the ability here to cast these devils out, you're calling that Spirit Beelzebub. You're calling the Spirit the devil there's the problem. You're calling good evil. Yeah. And you guys are, you're teetering on it. Well, hopefully some of them change their ways. We don't know. But Jesus was patient with them, even with those who were staunchly against him. But I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a moment, verse 3. Because I got to thinking about everything that we are experiencing as the church today what we believe in this gospel that has come to us what's the gospel yes it's good news but give me the words Christ died for what for our sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day praise God that's such a beautiful story right that gospel that come to us how did it come to us through this apostle by the name of Paul so in order for us to get the proper perspective on things like this that were said by Jesus, we have to be well grounded in the letters of Paul. 
Because we wouldn't even have a connection to Jesus if it had not been for that apostle. If, if, if Jesus had not taught Paul what to teach us, what would we know or what would we care? So he told him what to tell us. So what we have from Paul is what we have from Jesus. And it's quite a bit different, isn't it? And I say it's good different. It's very good different. If blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this ever-present possibility, the Apostle Paul's got to talk about this, right? To try to keep us from making that horrid mistake. He never mentions it once. Never threatens the church with it. Never threatens believers with it. Never even mentions blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? So we have to understand that sometimes the things that is Jesus is speaking of are under the context of the law. As a matter of fact, if we're really going to be honest about what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are, they're really Old Testament books. Until the very end where Jesus died and was buried and rose again. That's, the New Testament did not start until he came up out of that grave. All right, so all of these are still under the law. All the, and so even when Jesus came, like when he said things like this, when you pray and he taught us the, our, you know, the Lord's Prayer that we all love on a plaque or whatever. Um, but one of, the things that, one of the things that he does say, and a lot of people, I mean, they, that's the only prayer they know. And one of the things he says in there is to forgive us our debts as we do what? As we forgive our debtors. My, my family, you got much better reality than that today. That's not our prayer. The Apostle Paul taught us what Jesus taught him to teach us, and that is be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. All right, so now it's the, the switch has been flipped. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We don't forgive so that we do get forgiven. If you don't forgive others, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. Man, I'm telling you, I've heard that. I, in our New Testament reality, that stuff's still being preached today, just hammering people. Just taken right out of context. We don't even live there. And they're beating the people down with a life, the life-giving word. Imagine that. Instead of food, it's a hammer. That's the, that, that's, that's the story of religion. There's always something wrong with you that you've got to fix. You're never measuring up. You've got to fix it. What's, what's the favorite saying? You've got to get right with God. I've got to get right with God? <laughs> I might as well go to hell. <laughs> no, he got me right with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through, thank God, our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have to get right with God. I got right with God in Him. It's not by my efforts. Oh, okay. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Let's look at this. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. What, what did those Pharisees say, though? Would you say that they were saying He's a curse when He said, you do this by Beelzebub? You cast out Satan by Satan. No one can say by the Spirit, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. You see, this is what he's talking about. The Spirit's the one. The Spirit of the living God is the one who has put that, His Spirit in you where by, we, by Him, by that Spirit of adoption, I love that, we cry out, Abba, Father. 
See, he gives you that thing to say. He gives you that revelation. He gives you that utterance. It's by the Spirit. If you don't believe the Spirit, you're in trouble. But Paul never wrote about it. He never wrote about blasphemy. I mean, I, I, look, I tried to find it. I tried to find it in all of his letters, and it's not there. It's not there. You know what else I didn't find? I'm just going to touch on this for a couple minutes, and we'll go. But I've got to keep reminding you of this, my family, because this is something that has been so embedded into the hearts and the minds of the people of God that it has wrecked, shipwrecked people's faith. Just like there's no mention of blasphemy of the Spirit, we see no mention in Paul's writings of confessing our sins. Not one time. How is that such a prevalent message when the apostle to the Gentiles never says it? How is that our emphasis? I'm not saying ours. You've been set free from that garbage. We confess Jesus died for our sins. That's our confession about our sins. Christ died for my sins. Period. But we've been... As a matter of fact, let's just pretend like the Gospels are New Testament for a moment, all right? Let's just pretend, all right? So I, I just started looking it up. I've never actually looked it up. From Matthew to Revelation, how many mentions of confessing our sins are even mentioned? People confessing sins. You know how you many times I found it? From Matthew to Revelation, three times. Now watch this. Watch where they are. This is powerful. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see are two different, two different accounts of the same story. So really it's one, but we see two different people mentioning it. Matthew says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. And who's this talking about? It's talking about John the Baptist, right? Who came preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom, which is to repent and confess your sins and be baptized. That was the gospel of the kingdom. He was preparing the way of the Lord, and Jesus continued that message. Continued to, uh, every once in a while, he would, he would peak, he would declare something else coming, but the emphasis to the Jews was this message right here. All right, Mark's gospel, chapter one, same deal. Let's bring it up. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So it's the same, same account, right? Um, I mean, same story, except two different accounts. But so this is twice. And then one more place. This is it. This is John's baptism. Is this your baptism? No. No. This is the Jews' baptism. And part of their baptism is confessing their sins. So far, we don't see anything relating to us. Then there's the big one, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My question is, who is John an apostle to? Who is John an apostle to, Jews or Gentiles? How do you know? Because I taught you. All right, Galatians chapter 2. Let's go find it. Let's look at it with our own eyes for just a moment. I promise you all, we've only been here an hour and two minutes. Look at that. That's good. 
I just got to brag on this guy. That guy got to preaching tonight, didn't he? That was awesome. Galatians chapter 2, verse, um, let's try 6, somewhere around there. Somewhere around there. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Let me tell you who Paul is talking about. He's talking about Peter, James, and John. They seem to be something. Verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised was committed to me, as the gospel to the circumcised was to Peter. There's a gospel to the uncircumcised. That's you. And there was a gospel to the circumcised. That's the Jew. Now watch this. Eight. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Verse nine. And when James, Cephas being Peter and John, there they are, they're the big three, right? Who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Big deal right here. If you don't understand these guys' audience, if you don't understand who they're talking to, you're going to be very confused. All right? Paul is the apostle of the Gentiles. So that's why when you read their letters, you have to have Paul's understanding. Otherwise, you're going to think, it all applies to me. It does not all apply to you. And you thank God for that because the more you understand that, the freer you're going to get. I'm telling you, the freer in this gospel you're going to get. This stuff has bound the church, taking that one verse out of context from John and making it a, ma a major doctrine in the church when the Apostle Paul said nothing about it. What is wrong? We've been duped. We've been duped by man's greed for power. Hmm? To keep the people low. To keep the people pushed down. And to keep them living this cyclical kind of existence. Because if you adhere to, I got to make everything right by the end of the night and confess all my sins just in case, just in case what? Just in case what? Go ahead and say it. Just in case what? Just in case you die? Just in case you die? And, and so heaven or hell is dependent upon that? Are you kidding me? Where does Jesus come in to this deal? You need to get saved. You need to fully trust Jesus as the only source for your salvation. He's the only one who can save you to the uttermost. You confessed all of your sins when you said Jesus is Lord. That's what you did. All, what you said right there was, I am no longer the master of my life. The devil no longer is the master of my life. Jesus is Lord. And when you confess Jesus is Lord, then you have confessed that now you are in him, the one who died for your sins. And guess what? He's not holding your sins against you. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not holding their sins against them. But my God, the preachers love to hold the sins against the people. And the people hold their sins against themselves until they can, I just got to, I got to confess. Okay, now, now I'm right with God again. Are you seeing the lie that is being fed? The people are eating this up. And so they find themselves at this thing again, over and over again, you know, over and over again. And sin continues to dominate. 
And, and so the apex of their Christianity is to just get right again, and then tomorrow's another day. And at the end of that day, well, just get right again. And, and so our church service, we're all about just getting right. So we said the message, we preached the message, but everybody had to get right, and everybody has to get to the altar, and we got to confess, and we got to get right with God again. It's over and over and over, and just keeping the shackles on, keeping the people looking down, keeping the people feeling unworthy with no revelation of the one who died already for our sins. Confessing all these sins. And God, I can almost see it like God's going, what are they talking about? Because if he cast them as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more, you're bringing up stuff he doesn't even remember. He's not accounting you with your sins. What are we doing? I say we as in people that go to other churches. Not here. Hey, I don't care how many times I've preached this. I don't care how many times I've, I believe this, I've said this. Still tempted to go back into that way. That temptation still comes to go back into that way and begin to trust in myself. It's a trap. It's an absolute trap. And let me tell you what it's done. All this is done. All this whole thing is done. And by the way, I, and I'll talk to you about this again. I've talked to you about what John is saying here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Right? He, is, he is making a case for Jesus, the need for Jesus coming in the flesh. He said that which we handle with our hands, because he's battling something called Gnosticism as well as some other things at that time who give no flesh no, no value to the flesh. They are already at this spiritual apex or zenith. And so this doesn't even matter. So the fact that Jesus comes in the flesh, that doesn't mean anything to them. That's, that's useless. So sin doesn't exist. And John says, you need a wake-up call. You need a wake-up call. You need to understand that you were born in sin. When you, when you come to that acknowledgement, then he can save you. But if you don't do that, if you don't see the need for a savior because you are born in sin... But there's forgiveness. You see, we've twisted that whole thing, taken it right out of context, and made it the way to live the Christian life. And as long as you do that, sin will dominate you. You'll never believe that you can overcome. But you can overcome by faith because sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under rules. You're not under the law. You're under grace. Isn't this amazing? How do you overcome? Just receiving the gifts. That's how I overcome. Receiving the gifts from God by His grace or His favor. I love that. And see, the, the devil has nothing in that realm. He, he, doesn't, he can't even understand that realm. Just giving just grace. And that awakening to that and that acknowledgement and believing causes you to really, truly live a holy life. Almost on accident. <laughs> like you were born to do it. Like it's in your nature. Because it is in your nature. But this confession of sin today, my family, is just a mirror to the sacrificial system. That's all it is. It's, it's, it's a replacement of the Jewish sacrificial system who continued, even after Jesus bled for our sins and died, they continued to sacrifice. Saying, not acknowledging that blood, just the blood that would just cover. Just get right with God. Just make a little sacrifice. And confession of sin is no 
more sinful than that is. Trusting in the, my sacrificial system of confession, confession. When the blood's been shed, it's the once for all sacrifice. Well, pastor, what do I do? What do I do? I said, number one, stop. Just change your mind. Just change your mind. That's what repent means. It doesn't mean to boo-hoo and cry and all. Oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, that might be part of it, but it literally it just means change your mind. Right? Just fix it. Right? But here's what you do. The scripture says, come boldly before the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, if you have sin, you've got some need. And you got to take it to the cross. No, 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 no. He took it to the cross. He invites me to the throne. Woo! He took it to the cross. I'm going to the throne. The throne of grace. Woo! Where I find mercy and grace to help me in time of need. Thank you. Come on, why don't we just lift our hands for just a moment and thank him for that reality. Oh, yeah. Come boldly, he says. These are his terms. These are his terms. I know how you feel. I know how you feel in that failure. I know, I know, I know. But listen, don't go by what you feel. Trust me. Come on my terms, and my terms are this. Come boldly. You know why? Because he's your father and you're his child. You're not an employee. You're not a slave. You are sons of God. That means you have a rightful access right to your Father. Woo! See, religion teaches you that, oh no, I messed up. Right? Dad's going to kill me. <laughs> but sonship, I messed up. I need to talk to Dad. Hmm? <laughs> you know who you are. You know who you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your precious blood. Thank you for your abundant grace. You're more than enough supply for us. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to not give in to those religious gyrations and the, those, those little temptations, those accusations from the stupid devil who continues to speak, to talk down at us and to continues to hurl those things at us. Lord, we, by faith in God, choose to declare what God has said and to meet you on your terms, Father, to come boldly to come as your children, free from the tyranny of sin, free from the tyranny of religion and legalism, and living in the amazing grace of God. And it's that place, it's that life that will cause us to rise above, 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 above. Thank you, Lord. Ooh, man, praise God. I don't know about you. Eric Holler needed to hear that tonight, but I really felt the Lord just emphasizing that, just really pushing that tonight. I know. I know you were pulling on that tonight. I know that was helping you tonight. I know this is setting you free tonight. All right? Because this is all about Him. And the less we make it about us, the more we make it about Him, the more accurately we will live our lives. Amen. Let's stand together. this. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. 
I'm no longer a slave to fear. Thank you, Jesus. I am a child of God. Let's sing it again. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Oh, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Praise you, Lord. He whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Amen. The Lord bless you, keep you, and cause his face to shine upon you and continually continue to be gracious to you in all of your house and give you peace in Jesus' name. Amen. You got to get them to the gate. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. For more information about One Cause Church, please visit us online at onecausechurch.com.